Please join me this morning in our prayer of illumination. Calm us now, O Lord, into a quietness that heals and listens. Open wounded hearts to the balm of your word. Speak to us in clear tones so that we might feel our spirits leap for joy and skip with hope as your resurrection witnesses. Amen. First reading this morning is from Isaiah chapter 53, verses 1 through 9. Shout out, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Announce to my people their rebellion to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet day after day they seek me and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that practiced righteousness and did not forsake the ordinance of their God. They ask me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why do we fast? But why do you not see? Why humble ourselves, but you do not notice? Look. You serve your own interest on your fast day and oppress all your workers. Look, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to strike with the wicked fist. Such fasting as you do today will not make your voice heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose a day to humble myself? It is to bow, is it to bow down the head like a bulrush and to lie in sackcloth and ashes? Would you call this day a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed, Go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, to bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked, to cover them and not to hide yourself from your own kin. Then your light shall break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up quickly. Your vindicator shall go before you the glory of God, the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry for help and he will say, here I am. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Our New Testament reading comes from 1 John, the fourth chapter, the 17th through the 21st verses. There it reads as follows. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness on the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love. 
But perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not reached perfection in love. We love because he first loved us. Those who say, I love God and hate their brothers or sisters are liars. For those who do not love a brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. The commandment we have from him is this. Those who love God must love their brothers and sisters also. This is the word of the Lord for the people of God. Amen. Let us pray, and as we do so, reflect with me on this theme. I think we might have a race problem in America. I think we might have a race problem in America. Holy One, it's once again that we come before you with thanksgiving in our hearts. We're grateful today to be with sisters and brothers in Christ, to wrestle with your word and to see what it is that your word has to say to us today. Lord, as we gather right now, I ask for a fresh anointing of your spirit. May your spirit lead me to speak your words to your people and not my own. And may your spirit fall on each and every one who's gathered, that they may receive new insight, new understanding, new wisdom to guide us as we live our lives for Christ in this world. Lord, at all points in time, we ask that we would always be found useful to you for Christ's sake. Amen. Greetings, Mount Pleasant Church. It's good to be with you today. I want to say thank you. It's great to be with you. Uh, I was thinking, I was writing in Facebook yesterday, some assignments are more pleasurable than others. (laughs) To get to hang out here is kind of cool. I mean, if you all live here, this has got to be fun. I'd be at the beach every day. (laughs) It's great to be here, Lib. I want to say thank you for this invitation to hang out with this congregation and to get to to speak to them today for a few minutes. I have a very simple message. I can sum it up simply as, those who love God must love their brothers and sisters also. Pretty much enough said I can go sit down now. (laughs) But I know that I come here during a troubled time, during an apocalyptic moment, in our nation and our world's history, that eschatological crises beset us from every angle. We have a global pandemic that has taken millions of lives, a disproportionately high number of them, 608,000 American lives. Suicides have been happening at an unprecedented rate in part because of the war, in part because of the pandemic, in part because of isolation. I've met about four women in the last six months who've lost children. One woman lost her son on my own block. Last year, as you well know, the southeastern portion of the nation went through a significant hurricane season. Guess what? It's coming again this year. The southwestern portion of our nation went through a significant firestorm season. Looks like it's expanding further north this year. Our nations are reeling, is nation is reeling from an uprising based on evident police misconduct towards George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. Say their names. George Floyd. George Floyd. Breonna Taylor. Breonna Taylor. 
And just north of here in North Carolina, they're dealing with the recent murder of Andrew Brown. And we are still dealing with the aftermath of the most contentious election that we've had as a nation since the Civil War. Yes, these are troubled times. Perhaps it is because of the way that these crises have unfolded that God wanted me to speak about race today. So many of these apocalyptic crises have racial dimensions to them. The COVID-19 pandemic has hit black and brown peoples disproportionately. In some cities, three to five times the rate of infection to their rate in the population. Not only have they been infected at a higher rate, they've also succumbed at a higher rate than their white counterparts. The uprisings in the aftermath of the murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Ahmaud Arbery, though consisting of people of every color and race and age, were focused on the fact that far too often black lives don't matter in our nation, that black people can be killed without consequence, and that such killings have become far too frequent and far too routine. Even this contentious election has had a racial dynamic to it. Positively, it has said something to do with race inasmuch as it affirmed that more than 80 million American people were willing to vote for the first African-American, Indian-American female vice president. That's a good thing to be sure. Negatively, though, the divisive nature of the Trump campaign exacerbated racial tensions and threatened to further undo any hint of national unity. Now, I know some of you may be thinking, what did the Trump campaign do that exacerbated racial tensions? Race was rarely an issue raised by Trump, except when he said how much he had done for black people. But I want to let you in on a secret. Much of the tension that we saw in this election is because black and brown folks clearly heard dog whistles in his rhetoric. I'm not trying to be partisan, and I'm not taking a partisan position, but this election for many black and brown folks wasn't at all about partisan political issues, ideology, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican. It was about a matter of survival. People of color were terrified by the dog whistles. Uh, there are some things that I heard, that we heard, that you may not have heard. We heard Trump's prior description of Latinx immigrants as rapists and criminals. We heard him talking about locking up black and brown immigrants on, in cages on our borders and taking their children from them and developing an immigration policy that deported many asylum seekers. We heard his past references about immigrants from predominantly black and brown nations as those coming from whole countries, and I'm not going to say what that was. We heard him declare that there were fine people among the supremacists who marched in Charlottesville chanting, Jews will not replace us and blacks will not replace us. We heard his instructions commanding the Proud Boys, another supremacist group, to stand back and stand by. And after the election, we heard him trying to overturn the vote count in places with large Latino populations like Arizona and Pennsylvania and Georgia that had large black populations, saying that those voters were illegitimate. 
Trump was seen as an existential threat to the very lives of minoritized Americans. And as we look at the aftermath of this election, I want us to see clearly that many of the reactions people had that were so divisive had less to do with partisan choices and much more to do with issues of race. Those who love God must love their brothers and sisters also. In fact, I was on a call with many leaders from black and brown and Muslim and Jewish and Latinx and white communities in the aftermath of the election. And the most common concern I heard from so many was, we can't believe that more than 73,900,000 of our fellow American people voted for an obvious supremacist. That harmful racist rhetoric and the perpetuation of policies that targeted black and brown people did not immediately disqualify a candidate for the highest office in the world was more than a little bit troubling to black and brown folks. Almost half of the people that voted voted for a candidate for whom our lives did not matter. Again, I'm not saying this today to you to castigate anybody for their vote, but to let those of you who may not understand, no matter for whom you voted, understand that race was a real and present factor in this election. I also want to let you know that racial tensions are incredibly high in our nation today. As an avid waterfall hiker, I frequently find myself in western North Carolina on Sunday afternoons. I guess I won't make it this one. (laughs) I've been disturbed over this last year to see not only a proliferation of Confederate flags, but a plethora of such flags hanging from pickup trucks alongside of Trump flags. I know that some of you may question why the Confederate flag, a symbol of southern pride and heritage, is such a threatening symbol. Well, in part, it's because if it really were the Confederate flag, it would symbolize people fighting for the right to dehumanize my ancestors, to enslave them, and to treat them as property to be bought and sold. But it really isn't the Confederate flag at all. It's actually a flag used by a single Virginia regiment. It's a flag that only really gained popularity in the late 19th and early 20th century as a symbol of the Ku Klux Klan. It was brandished at their rallies, imprinted on their identification coins, a symbol of terror used at lynchings and cross lightings and rallies. It was later used by the southern states and added to their state flags, not in 1890s, not in the 1910s or 1920s, but in the 1950s as a response to Brown versus the Board of Education. It was a symbol that was literally meant to say, we need to keep blacks in their place. It is a supremacist symbol of hate. Those who love God must love their brothers and sisters also. I say all of this to say that it has been a terrorizing experience to be a black man. As the father of a teenage daughter in my own town, my own state, my own country in which I live, we've sought solace in the woods and 
We've seen that the divisions in our nation are quite real. My daughter, and uh, I should say my two daughters, are sitting back there today. Uh, my daughter is about to go off to college at UNC Chapel Hill. And you can say amen to that, even though I'm a Duke guy. Uh, <laughs> and her best friend since she was two and a half years old is going to be her roommate. So, More recently... I was disturbed by the celebration after the long overdue conviction of Officer Derek Chauvin. It's not just that I don't ever want to celebrate another person's conviction for murder or their being branded as a murderer. It's just that it seems wrong no matter what the circumstances to do such a thing. But it's also the concern that why should we have to celebrate when the court system finally gets something right? Why should we have to celebrate when you see a police officer put his knee on the neck of a human being for more than nine minutes and watch him die? Why should this be a major incident that we need to celebrate? The court got it right. Because far too often it has not gotten this right. Far too often... People that kill black and brown people are able to walk with no consequences. What I think many people who believe themselves to be white don't get is that the qualified immunity that you hear Black Lives Matter protesters upset about when they're out there talking about George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Maude Arbery and Trayvon Martin and so many other people, that what, that which they said should not apply to police this immunity to get away with killing people actually derives from the Fugitive Slave Act when white mobs were empowered to hunt down and to kill, if necessary, black people who were enslaved seeking to be free. So I say all of this to say I think we just might have a race problem in America. And the race problem is not just with supremacist groups and overt individual racist acts. The problem is systemic. That's why in spite of the fact that blacks and whites commit crimes at roughly the same rates as Michelle Alexander talks about in the New Jim Crow, blacks are prosecuted often 20 and 30 times as much as their white counterparts. In fact, for an African-American born since 2000, there is a one in three chance that he will spend some portion of his life in jail or under the supervision of the criminal justice system. Not because he's more likely to commit a crime, but because we tend to enforce crimes against black and brown folks that we don't against white folks. There's a statement that was made, uh, I think Michelle Alexander made this in her text as well, that if the war on drugs had targeted college campuses, our prisons would now be filled with white college students. That's why despite the fact that COVID infects all human beings in the same ways, African Americans and Latinos are far more likely to become infected because they work at a higher percentage in essential service industry jobs where they can't work from home like some of us can and are forced to put themselves at additional risk. Further, because these jobs often pay so little, they often do not have medical insurance. 
So in a state like South Carolina that did not expand Medicaid as part of the Affordable Care Act, they're more likely to die from COVID-19 because they can't seek medical treatment until their symptoms are acute. And only then can they seek help in the emergency room. That's why we have frequent occurrences of Black Lives Matter marches as black people are killed by white police and vigilantes at a much higher rate than their white counterparts. That's why we have school systems that continue to underserve and underfund and hence undereducate black and brown children. That's why we have the problem with homelessness with black people who often though working full time at minimum wage jobs can't afford to buy or rent a home at their low wage level in their cities. That's why we have college-educated African-American males who are still less likely to get a job than formerly incarcerated white males. Think on that for a moment. That's why we have African-American families that average one-tenth the amount of wealth as their white counterparts. Why? Because we have a race problem in America. But those who love God are supposed to love their brothers and sisters also. Yes, this is what it is, a problem with race. I've often heard it framed as a problem with racism. As such, it describes a, a problem with a bad apple, a few racist cops, or a bad apple, a few racist school systems, a bad apple, a few racist policies. But that's not it. The essence of our problem is not with individual racists or even groups of racists. Our problem is with the issue of race itself. Race, the notion that we are all fundamentally different based upon the color of our skin. Race, the concept that differences on the outside can be correlated with differences in the internal qualities and our value as human beings. Race, the belief that we exist as a hierarchy of human worth with those with less melanin at the top and those with more melanin in their skin seen as more valuable. Race, the legitimating ideology that made it all right for Europeans to take land from people and to take people from land. Race, the rationale used to justify the slavery and mass incarceration of black and brown bodies in our nation. You see, the fact that we believe that the concept of race is fundamental, I believe in the concept of race is fundamentally the problem that we face in America. Don't believe me? You see, we got rid of slavery, but kept race the legitimating ideology that was the skeletal structure that propped slavery up. And race gave birth to the Ku Klux Klan and the white citizens' counselors and Jim Crow and separate but equal. So we had the Civil Rights Movement and passed the Civil Rights Act of 64 and the Voting Rights Act of 65 and affirmative action policies, but kept race. And race gave us the war on drugs uh, during the Nixon campaign, which Michelle Alexander called the war on black and brown bodies and mass incarceration with the Clinton administration that put more and more black bodies in jail, a higher incarceration rate in the U.S. than in Soviet USSR. So we elected Obama and began with Van Jones and Newt Gingrich to address mass incarceration and to shift our policies on drugs, 
but we kept race, and race gave birth to making America great again and the current undermining of the Voting Rights Act and the racial animus that we see today. Right now, I want you to realize that in states across our nation, general assemblies are passing bills that will not expand the right to vote, not reach out to more new people, but to curtail that right in order to control who votes for them. As Brian Stevenson, the author of Just Mercy, notes, the enslavement of black people in the United States lasted for more than two centuries and was justified by an elaborate narrative of racial inferiority. This ideology has endured beyond the formal abolition of slavery. But those who love God must love their brothers and sisters also. You all don't get it. Let me tell you a story. I live in a nice little cul-de-sac in Charlotte, North Carolina, and uh, when I moved in, I had a mailbox, and there was nothing in my little, the little area around it, so I wanted to plant a rose bush. I wanted the beautiful pink flowers to come out and give everybody in the neighborhood joy, and the flowers did come out, and the bush did grow, and it was beautiful, and I was real happy with it. But the kids in the neighborhood would ride their bikes around the cul-de-sac and ran into the bush. And they're like, Mr. Sadler, can you please get rid of that rose bush? Then the mail carriers would come in and put mail in my box and get pricked by the thorns. Mr. Sadler, will you please get rid of this rose bush? <sighs> so frustrated, I went out and cut my rose bush down. About three months later, the rose bush was back again. I said, okay, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to cut it down at the end of the season. I'm going to get rid of it, and we won't have this problem anymore. I cut the rosebush down. I uh, thought it was done. But the next spring, guess what? Rosebush was back again. I cut it down two or three more times, and one of my neighbors who has a, a business where he cares for a lawn care, he says, uh, Rodney, you have to recognize that you can keep cutting the bush down as much as you want, but until you deal with the root, you're going to have a constant problem. You see, this is what I think is going on in America. We constantly deal with the presenting problem, the rosebush, but we fail to deal with the root. We constantly deal with uh, the momentary crisis of racism. A black man is shot by a police officer. Oh, we're going to put cameras on them. A black man has had his uh, knee put on his neck for nine minutes. Oh, we're going to teach police de-escalation tactics and other ways of dealing with aggression. A uh, school system is failing its black and brown students. Oh, we're going to put more money into the school system. We deal with the presenting problem. We deal with the rose bush, but we never deal with the root. And the root is not racism. The root is the concept of race itself. Our fundamental problem is not racism, it is race. It is this idea of the fundamental ontological, genetic, biological difference between human beings that must change if we are ever to change the system that supports it. The solution is not just found in changing a hand, uh, few hardened hearts or a few closed minds. Our problem can only be resolved by changing a racialized system. Frankly, none of us today is guilty of creating this system. It's something that we were all born into, something that we all inherited. 
It is a system that has evolved in America since the first Africans were brought here as indentured servants in 1619, were racialized, were dehumanized, were turned into commodities, things, not people. Each of us today has been raised in and shaped by this system. It is not our fault that this system exists. None of us is guilty of it. It's not our fault, but it is all of our responsibility to do something about it. Amen, lights. Amen, pews. We can see the brokenness of our system, the way that it differently values human beings, the way that it treats some as though they are better than others and others as though they are lesser than them. We can see the brokenness in the way that it divides us along color lines and give those perceived to be white undue privilege and unearned advantage in our economic system. We can see the brokenness of our system in the way that white privilege comes at the expense of black underprivilege and disadvantage and suffering. We can see the brokenness of our system in the way that race allows us to pretend that such differences, they're all right. None of us has caused these systemic imbalances, but we are all responsible to do something about them because, as the Bible says, those who love God must love their brothers and sisters also. Yes, we as Christians are heirs not only of the concept of race and of racialized systems, we are also the heirs of the early Christian church. The first problem that the early Christian church had to deal with was the problem of the race line. At that time, we were the racial others. I think I can speak with a great deal of certainty that nobody in here today is a Jew. So everybody in here would have been deemed in the first century unclean, alien, other, separate from God as Gentiles. The Jews would have had a privileged position in relationship to God. We are the outsiders, the outcasts, those only brought in by God's grace, only brought in because Jesus, a Jew, made space for us. The early Christian community addressed the racial line that kept away Jews from Gentiles and made us all a common people sitting at a common table as we became no longer Jew or Greek, no longer slave or free, no longer male and female, for all of us are one in Christ Jesus. We became one in Christ. And now in this time of racial division, it is imperative for us to come back together again, overcoming the racial lines, eliminating racist power to define our being and to separate us from each other, obliterating the gross disparities that make life on earth heaven for some in light skin and hell for those in darker bodies. We have the power in Christ to overcome race. I know that many of us think that race is an eternal and intractable problem, one that has been with us since creation of the world and forever will be. But race is not eternal. It was a bad idea that is only a couple of hundred years old. It was created to legitimate inequality. And guess what, folk? If we made the idea, we have the power to unmake it as well.
We former Gentiles, former outcasts, former unclean, former rejects are now all children of God, made in God's image, equally valuable, equally mortal, equally moral, equally intelligent, equally gifted, equally worthy of the best that God has to offer. Our equality is undermined by a bad idea, race. But race is just that, a bad idea. It has no power but that which we give to it. And it cannot stand up against the power that God has given to us. You see, we've overcome race before in the early church, and we can overcome race again if we realize who we are as Christians. Do you all know who we are? Do you all know who we are as Christians? We are God's children of the resurrection, those born of the promise, convinced of the reality that the Savior of the world was a brown Palestinian Jewish carpenter from a ghetto town called Nazareth from which nothing good could come. This poor working class man of color was arrested by an oppressive power of the state-sanctioned force, convicted unjustly based upon judicial systems and their prejudices, executed wrongly, lynched from a tree, in an act of judicial malfeasance, the crucified Christ was buried on Friday afternoon, and with him all hope was gone, all hope for a better way was lost. He laid in the ground on Saturday. But then again, early Sunday morning, God raised him from the dead. We believe that, don't we? I think we're about to make a testimony about the fact that we believe that God raised him from the dead. If God raised Jesus, then God can deal with race. If God raised Jesus, then God can bring us back together across the racial divide. If God raised Jesus, then God can make us agents of the reconciliation. If God raised Jesus, then God can overcome the divisions of this world. You see, we children of God have been charged to deal with race and to end its demonic divisions of human beings. Race and racism is sin. We have the power in Christ to overcome this evil and a constant reminder of why we must. Our love of God is expressed in our care for each other, each sister, each brother, for we cannot say we love the unseen God if we do not first love our sisters and brothers, regardless of their color, their culture, their creed, or their race. For those who love God must love their brothers and sisters also. I often think maybe I make more sense not in prose, but in verse, let me end with a poem. We cannot love our brother and sister and racialize them, minoritize them, oppress them, distress them, incarcerate them, segregate them, denigrate them, eliminate them, ghettoize them, stigmatize them, criminalize them, victimize them. That's not what love looks like. We cannot love our brother and sister and commodify them with slavery and terrorize them relentlessly and separate them unequally and treat them inhumanely and sentence them to poverty. That's not what love looks like. 
We cannot love our brother and sister and eliminate their opportunity and violate their dignity and limit their prosperity and deny their equality and question their very humanity. That's not what love looks like. If we ever did believe we loved our God who is invisible, then that love would be manifest in the care for those for whom we're responsible. And we would not consider race for we'd realize that behind each face is the very face of God, reflected though unseen. So equality and justice, equity and peace, sharing of God's gifts, captives are released, poor are hearing good news, aliens are being welcomed, liberation is coming, reign of God is beginning, and that's what love looks like. And when we love each other, that's what loving God looks like. That's what loving God looks like. In Jesus' name, amen.